Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. U.S. President Donald Trump to face impeachment inquiry and South Sudan's rival ethnic group sign a peace agreement. In economics news, South Africans urge to withdraw enough money ahead of banking strike and in sports news. A protest shift focus to test cricket after T20 series draw with India. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Six members of Egypt's banned Muslim Brotherhood group have been killed in a shootout with police on the outskirts of the capital, Cairo. The Interior Ministry say protests against alleged corruption in President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's regime broke out in several Egyptian cities at the weekend. State media accused the Muslim Brotherhood of influencing the protesters. Sisi took power following the overthrow of Mohamed Morsi in 2013. At least 60,000 people, most of them members of the now-outlawed Muslim Brotherhood, are reported to have been detained. In the past six years, hundreds have been handed preliminary death sentences by courts and activists say hundreds more have gone missing in apparent forced disappearances. Police in Zimbabwe are preventing union leader Peter Magombay from heading to South Africa to receive medical treatment as he recovers from an alleged abduction. This comes hours after the High Court ordered the police to allow Magombay to leave the country. Rights activists and local media are reporting that police are blocking him from leaving a medical facility in the capital, Harare. Earlier this month, Magombay's colleague said he was abducted by state agents after he had organized a health workers strike. Five days later, he was found alive but extremely disorientated. Staying in Zimbabwe, the government say the capital Harare's water treatment plant, which was shut down, will be reopened after authorities bought chemicals. The move will restore access to water to 2 million people. On Monday, the opposition movement for democratic change led Harare City Council said it could not afford the chemicals because of a lack of foreign currency. The BBC's Will Ross reports. Harare's Deputy Mayor Enoch Mupamawande has described the situation as devastating and appealed to the government to make enough foreign currency available so that chemicals can be bought to get the water treatment plant up and running again. This is the latest sign of the severe impact that the economic crisis is having on Zimbabwe. There are reports of increased cases of diarrhoea in the capital and there are fears that the consumption of untreated water could lead to further outbreaks of cholera or typhoid. 
Democrats in the U.S. have begun the formal process of trying to remove President Donald Trump from office. The Democrat-controlled House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi has confirmed the announcement. It comes after reports emerged that the president sought foreign help to smear a political opponent who is currently the front runner to face him in next year's presidential election. Showan Bryce Peace reports. The announcement came after a growing number of Democrats called for impeachment proceedings to begin after facing months of stonewalling of congressional investigations into the president and his administration's actions. Pelosi referencing the allegations that the president tried to pressure his Ukrainian counterpart to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son over the latter's business dealings in that country And finally, scientists from the UN will later in the day publish the results of their latest major study on how climate change is affecting the world's oceans and frozen regions. The report on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says urgent action is needed to cut carbon emissions. The BBC's Martin McRae reports. For decades, the oceans have been humanity's long-suffering friend in the battle against climate change. Every year, the seas have soaked up around a quarter of the world's carbon emissions. And every year since the 1970s, the oceans have also absorbed over 90% of the excess heat generated by humans. But this supportive role of the oceans has come at a considerable cost, as today's report from the IPCC will detail. All over the world, the waters are rising as Greenland and Antarctica melt and glaciers disappear. Hundreds of millions of people could be at risk of flooding by the end of this century. Extreme weather events are more likely. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The Democrat-controlled House of Representatives in the United States will launch a formal impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. The announcement by Speaker Nancy Pelosi comes after reports emerged that the president sought foreign help to smear a political opponent who is currently the frontrunner to face him in next year's presidential election. The announcement came after a growing number of Democrats call for impeachment proceedings to begin after facing months of stonewalling of congressional investigations into the president and his administration's actions. Show and Bryce Peace reports. On a day the president addressed the United Nations in New York, a political storm was brewing in Washington, one that threatens to divide the country over a president Nancy Pelosi says violated the Constitution. This week, the president has admitted to asking the president of Ukraine to take actions which would benefit him politically. The, action of the, tr- the actions of the Trump presidency revealed 
the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella of impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. The issue to break the political levy is a call President Trump made to the president of Ukraine in July in which he allegedly pressed for investigations into former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter, the latter who had business dealings in the country. The matter came to light after an intelligence official turned whistleblower informed the Inspector General about the call, then escalating it to the Acting Director of National Intelligence, a Trump appointee who has refused to transmit the complaint to Congress as required by law. The intelligence community inspector general formally notified the Congress that the administration was forbidding him from turning over a whistleblower complaint on Constitution Day. This is a violation of law. Shortly thereafter, press reports began to break of a phone call by the President of the United States calling upon a foreign power to intervene in his election. This is a breach of his constitutional responsibilities. The facts are these. The Intelligence Community Inspector General, who was appointed by President Trump, determined that the complaint is both of urgent concern and credible. And its disclosure, he went on to say, relates to one of the most significant and important of the Director of National Intelligence's responsibility to the American people. Trump has lashed out calling the latest move presidential harassment. And they're going to lose the election and they figure this is a, a thing to do. This never happened where we're in the election. And I mean, if she does that, they all say that's a positive for me from the election. You could also say who needs it? It's bad for the country. Then they wonder why they don't get gun legislation done. Then they wonder why they don't get drug prices lowered. Uh, because all they do is talk nonsense. No more uh, infrastructure bills. No more anything. All they do, that's all they do. You watch Jerry Nadler and Schiff. You know, Schiff has been doing this stuff for three and a half years. It's the craziest thing anybody's ever seen. With just over 13 months before presidential elections in 2020, this now starts a political brawl between Democrats and Republicans, the likes of which the country has not seen since former President Bill Clinton was impeached in 1998. And it's a path that remains unclear. This is an inquiry, but does not necessarily mean that the House will vote to charge the president with high crimes and misdemeanors. But even if that were to happen, it would be left to the Senate to convict. And with Republicans in control of the upper house, it's likely a bridge too far. I'm Sherman Rice Pease in New York. Two of South Sudan's prominent cattle-keeping ethnic groups have signed a peace agreement before their traditional paramount chiefs to end abduction of children and cattle rustling, which have been taking place for more than 50 years. Channel Africa's James Shimangula has more.
History has been made in South Sudan, where two of the country's well-known pastoral ethnic groups have appended their signatures on a peace agreement to signify the end of hostilities derived from age-old abduction of children and cattle rustling. The signatories to the agreement signed in Jongle, the largest region in South Sudan, belong to the Murle and the Dinka ethnic groups. South Sudan President Salva Kiir is a member of the Dinka, the largest ethnic group in the country. The signing of the agreement before two traditional paramount chiefs was witnessed by Hawa Aganas, United Nations Mission Civil Affairs Officer in South Sudan. She attests to the fact that abduction of children and cattle raiding are common between people belonging to the Dinka and the Morle ethnic groups. Issues of cattle raiding and child abduction have been happening between these communities. If you remember last year, there were cattle raids in Payuel and then there were attacks in Mar, in Jale. So the communities are aggrieved. That's why the governments approached civil affairs to try and bring their people together to discuss their issues and come up with resolutions. Malak Ayuen Mayen Dinka ethnic group paramount chief that witnessed the signing of the agreement had this to say. The group joining Over the years, abduction of children and cattle rustling has become a culture or something that is addicted. Child abduction is something that came from their forefathers up to date. It is still being practiced. The problem of cattle raiding is poverty that causes people to go and raid other people's cattle to have wealth. That was Dinka Paramount Chief Malaka UN Mayen. And this is how Murle Ethnic Group Paramount Chief John Gulech Logochok described the agreement that was signed by the two sides. It is the first ever agreement that has been signed, agreement that was preceded by a meeting between the Dinka and the Murle people. The agreement must be respected by the signatories. Apart from the two paramount chiefs being present when the agreement was signed, two tribal women leaders were also present. Rebecca Kony Ibon, Murle women leader, blamed elderly Murle and the Dinka men for allegedly inciting the youth to abduct children and steal cattle. Elderly men of both sides were the ones advising our youth to commit crimes of abducting children and cattle raids. But now all of us have come together as one family and agreed that we'll create peace awareness. Dinka women leader Angelina Nyakuertong emphasized the need for peace among members of the Dinka and the Murle ethnic group. For many years, we have experienced a saddening situation. Now we have realized that we need peace. There has to be peace. When there is peace, there is development. That was Dinka women leader Angelina Nyakuertong. 
At this juncture, it may be appropriate to note that in South Sudan, owning hundreds of cattle is traditionally seen as a sign of wealth and status by members of the Dinka and the Murle ethnic groups. In fact, teenage girls in South Sudan are worth more than 60 cows before they reach the legal age of marriage. Once abducted, the teenage girls are traded for instant bovine-shaped cash. A marriage-inclined man needs cows to pay a hefty dowry, amounting to hundreds of precious cows to the family of the bride he has set his eyes on. My personal research in South Sudan, which enabled me to write a history book titled The Birth of South Sudan shows in a chapter called Jonglei Dowry Riddle that on average between 40 and 60 head of cattle are required for dowry among several ethnic groups including the Dinka and the Murle. Neither the Dinka nor the Murle have fully embraced modern methods of accepting cash in lieu of livestock for bride price. Murle and the Dinka elders acknowledge that the tradition of cattle riding practiced since time immemorial has contributed to the perpetual cycle of intercommunal cattle raiding. The elders believe that increased intermarriage between the two ethnic groups is likely to reduce hostilities and is unlikely to lead to the lowering or abolishment of traditional payment of dowry in the days to come. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel, and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. The U.S. Embassy in Zimbabwe has availed 42 million U.S. dollars towards food provision for one million citizens. Tuesday's interventions bring the American donation towards Cyclone Idai and drought victims to 87 million U.S. this year. At least 5 million Zimbabweans are at risk of starvation if their food situation is not improved by April 2020. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. At least 1 million Zimbabweans would benefit from the United States' financial assistance towards eradicating drought-induced hunger. An additional 42 million U.S. dollars was availed by the U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe, Brian Nicholas, in the capital on Tuesday, bringing the war intervention this year to 86.9 million U.S. dollars. Zimbabwe has experienced persistent droughts the past three years, wreaking havoc to the economically troubled Southern African nation. By the time the U.S. government availed $45 million U.S. million earlier this year, at least 2 million people were at risk. However, following the cyclone Idai disaster in the Manikalen province in March this year, the population rose to 5.5 million people. Cyclone Idai killed more than 300 people. 300 more went missing and hundreds of homes were swept away. Fields were also destroyed, thereby increasing food insecurity. This resulted in the United Nations launching a $331 million U.S. dollar appeal a few months ago. The U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe, Brian Nicholas, had this to say. I am honored to represent the United States government here today 
as we announce our additional contribution of $41.9 million in response to the United Nations appeal for humanitarian assistance to increased emergency food needs in Zimbabwe. This brings the total U.S. government contribution for the 2019-2020 lean season to $86.9 million. With these resources, the United States government, through the U.S. Agency for International Development, will provide life-saving food assistance to over 1 million vulnerable Zimbabweans in 16 districts across the country. In a bid to achieve maximum results from the donations made to the Zimbabwean citizens, the U.S. Embassy partnered with the World Food Program to provide cash and food. The U.S. Ambassador said, The $45 million contribution we announced in August combined with this additional $41.9 million contribution will provide food rations and a limited number of cash transfers for the purchase of food between October 2019 and April 2020. This assistance will maintain the nutritional status of vulnerable Zimbabweans and alleviate suffering. These resources are in addition to $15 million the United States provided in emergency food security funding for the 2018-2019 lean season under the UN flash appeal and $7.9 million in Cyclone Idai response funding. According to the WFP head in Zimbabwe, Ediro, tropical cyclone Idai ravaged hundreds of lives in the Shimanman area, prompting an increased humanitarian intervention to save lives. Over the last year, Zimbabwe has experienced drought, economic instability, and the shock of Cyclone Idai. Any one of those in isolation would be challenging for any nation, but the amalgamation of all three only deepens the insecurities already faced by the most vulnerable. It is fitting that we are speaking just after the UN Climate Action Summit held in New York only yesterday. For days now leading up, leading up to this summit, youth and inspired persons around the world have been marching and crying for world leaders to take action in the face of an impending global crisis. Meanwhile, the donation on Tuesday came at a time when the Cyclone Idai food aid was said to be rotting in warehouses while malnutrition was on the increase. The U.S. ambassador explained the situation with regards aid that comes through his embassy. Let me just add on that that the United States government and its implementing partners have taken great care to ensure that every grain of assistance that we provide goes to the intended recipients. Uh, none of the reported incidents in Chimani Mani relate to U.S. assistance, and the precise reason that we work with the World Food Program, the global leader of food security, is to ensure that every ounce of assistance goes to the intended recipients, uh, and we are confident that that is happening. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. 
The South African government is working to ensure that African languages are taught at all schools in the country. That's according to President Sil Ramaphosa at the Heritage Day celebrations in Uppington in the country's northern Cape province yesterday. The president also promised that bursaries will also be given to students at tertiary level who want to major in African languages. The theme for this year is the promotion of indigenous languages. Debo Mokobo reports. Kuma South Africa, Hakanao. South Africa, a country rich in diversity, and perhaps the Northern Cape is a better place to demonstrate this. The Ku and the Nama are the oldest languages mainly spoken in this part of the country. Addressing the Heritage Day celebrations under the theme of promoting indigenous languages, President Cyril Ramaphosa said no language belongs in the past, insisting they are all of equal value. Language is the great transmission line that binds us to our forebears. It actually speaks to your identity as a person, as a South African. So there is therefore no language we can say belongs to the past and must stay there. We cannot say the Nama language or the Nu language belongs to the past and it must forever remain there. Every single language spoken in this country has equal value and it has equal worth and I would encourage all of us to learn another language. And in a country where parents normally converse with their children in English, The president committed his administration to ensuring all the indigenous languages are offered at school across the country with bursaries for those who want to pursue them at tertiary level. We are actively working to make sure African languages are offered in all our schools. Over the past few years, we have reduced the number of public schools that do not teach African languages from 2,500 to just over 460. By the end of next year, we want all our 23,000 schools to offer an African language where our children can learn our languages. We are working with our institutions of higher learning to develop lexicography and terminology development units and offer bursary schemes to students who want to major in a number of African languages. And to a loud applause, the president said the sign language could soon be amongst the country's official languages. Now, our parliament has also been asked to elevate sign language to the status of the official language. My neighbor here who is speaking in sign language, we want this language that he is translating into, they have asked us that we should make it an official language. So we are now on the move to ensure that we protect our languages, we extend the utilization of various languages. President Ramaphosa also implored South Africans to visit their local libraries to get and read one of the books in indigenous languages. I am Tebumokobo Abington in the Northern Cape.
King of the Zulu Nation of South Africa, Goodwill Zulitini, has expressed his surprise that President Cyril Ramaphosa has apologized to other countries for attacks on foreign nationals in South Africa before consulting the Amakosi first. King Goodwill Zulitini maintains that Amakosi understand people better than politicians. He added that no problem will be successfully solved without the involvement of Amakosi in rural areas. Kalesak Mbenze has more. Thousands of Amazulu gathered at Watuguza on the Western North Coast to celebrate Heritage Day. The traditional regiments called Amabutu, maidens and dignitaries from different sectors of society took part in the celebration. Addressing thousands of people, King Kutu Zulitini called on the government to consult Amakosi or traditional structures first in order to address the challenges facing people. <laughs> Nobody's come to us how do you maintain peace and security in our area? I believe that the intervention of the courts and working together with the government can be a solution I call you government to come to work with King Kutu Zolitini says he is surprised that President Ramaphosa apologized to other countries for attacks on foreign nationals in South Africa before consulting the Amakosi. Prince Bangosu Tibetales has acknowledged the role of the monarch in instilling cultural values in Zulu people. Referring to the xenophobic violence, Butelez says, it is disappointing that there is no tolerance among Africans. He says, whether you call it xenophobic, there will always be a criminal element. It's possible to build quickly and steal something of lasting value, but it's also possible to destroy something valuable in a short space of time. And I fear that if we do not change the trajectory of our country, we will find that much has been destroyed it cannot easily be rebuilt. Our international reputation destroyed. Our people's sight destroyed. Our sense of cohesion destroyed. Our belief in justice destroyed. Maidens, who were part of the event, also appreciated the value of cultural activities. Part of my culture because my mom is telling me about anything to like. I would like to be thankful to my mom and dad, the way they raised me, and to all the medians that are around us. Uh, we are here because we are proud to be the Zulu women. My culture is very important for me, and what I am is very important for me. Because I love what I am and what other maidens are. We are the beauty of the world. We are the flowers. <laughs> has emphasized that the government will not allow people to be in the country illegally. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, six members of Egypt's banned Muslim Brotherhood group have been killed in a shootout with police on the outskirts of the capital, Cairo. Police in Zimbabwe are preventing union leader Peter Magombe from heading to South Africa to receive medical treatment as he recovers from an alleged abduction. And Democrats in the U.S. have begun the formal process of trying to remove President Donald Trump from office. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, have visited the oldest mosque in South Africa, the Awal Masjid, in the walk-up amid strict and tight security. Built in 1794, the mosque houses the oldest known manuscripts of the Quran, which the royal couple viewed. Tandiswa Mao reports. The Quran was written by hand by Tuan Guru, one of the first Islamic faith leaders. He wrote the holy text from memory while imprisoned on Robben Island for 13 years. The royal couple was taken on a tour of the small mosque and was met and addressed by community and different faith leaders. I'm Mastura Adams. Yes, well, it was uh, more chitter-chatter than anything else, you know, very light-hearted. They're a beautiful couple, they're lovely, and that's what we complimented them on. My name is Fozia Ahmad. I think um, Prince Harry raised a very important question, and it's a question about how do we see Cape Town integrating. And my response to him was, we so much want to, but the conversation is not finished. The royals also had a meet and greet with members of the Christian faith, Father Michael Lapsley, who lost both hands when a letter bomb sent by the apartheid government exploded on him, says he was surprised that Prince Harry seemed to know his story. He asked me, he said, a letter bomb, question mark, you know, and so then I... Well, he sort of, it was like instinctive on his part, you know, it was like he didn't, it was like an exclamation with a question mark, you know, a letter bomb, whatever, so then... uh, Father Michael Weeder of the Cape Town Anglican Church. I said to welcome home uh, because it's the fact that they gather with us on Heritage Day and the way they, uh, in so many ways, they, their marriage also reflect our aspirations of, of union, of coming together in our diversity, which is the whole emphasis of our Heritage Day beyond Bryflace. Outside the mosque, a very excited crowd was hoping to catch a glimpse of the royal couple The royals did not address the people, but many said they felt blessed that they chose their area for the visit. This is our book of, we are special. You know, certain places that they choose to be. I'm also very excited, and my kids are also very excited. Now for the next generation to see the prince coming to Buka in a lifetime opportunity. I met Megan yesterday, we spoke a little bit, um, and today I'm here for Harry. I'm extremely excited to meet him. Um, yeah, I'm just excited that they're in the country. The Duke and Duchess are expected to visit Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu and his wife Leah on Wednesday morning. In the afternoon, the Duchess will visit Woodstock for an interaction with women entrepreneurs, while the Duke will travel alone to Angola, Malawi, and Botswana. I'm Tandiswamau in Cape Town. The annual conference of Electoral Commission Forum of Sa- for Sadak Countries is underway in Malawi's commercial capital, Blantyre, with an aim of sharing trends in electoral democracy in the region. The annual conference is being held under the theme Enhancing the Credibility of Elections Through Observation. George Mango reports from Blantyre. 
The conference started on Monday and is held at a time when MEC Chair Jane Ansa is under fire from opposition political parties and some human rights bodies over management of the May 21 presidential polls. She, however, has not resigned and President Peter Mutarika, who appointed her, declined to fire her. Ansa maintained during her opening speech that the May 21 presidential polls were credible and approved by international observer mission teams. The opposition, mainly Malawi Congress Party MCP and United Transformation Movement UDM, are challenging the results in the constitutional court. The opposition parties want the results to be nullified. The MEC chair, who is also the ECF SADC president, opened the conference, which is tightly guarded by police. The SADC ECF was one of the international organizations that sent a team of election observers. They came before the elections and they came during polling. They gave their report, like other international observers and local observers. At that time, you know, all the reports, and you know it, even the local observers, they endorsed that the elections were credible. With news that the MEC chair is attending the ECF study conference, the Human Rights Defenders Coalition, HRDC, has planned fresh protests in Blanta this Wednesday. BMIA is in the organizing team. We commence around 8 from the upper stadium in Blanta, and then we proceed down Kamuzu Highway up to the Mount Soji Hotel, where the forum is being held. Um, we intend to read out a petition and deliver it to the SADIC uh, chairperson who will be present at that meeting. The ECF SADIC could not be drawn to comment on the logic of Malawi hosting the event when the elections are being disputed and calls continue to pour in for the resignation of the MEC chair. The ECF SADIC Executive Committee Chairperson, who is also Chairperson of the Namibia Electoral Commission, Advocate Nomtembe Chipoya, said the matter is in court. We that there are court cases at the moment, and therefore we know that as far as a court case is on, it is subjudicate. So at this moment we will not be prepared as a forum to actually make any comment on the court cases that are before the court at this present time. During the conference, a seminar on enhancing the credibility of elections through observation is expected to be conducted. Political party representatives, human rights activists, senior government officials are in attendance at the conference, which was officially opened by Everton Chimulirenji, the vice president of the Republic of Malawi. As Malawi government, we are committed to ensure that elections are well-funded and supported, and this was demonstrated towards the preparations of the May 21st, 2019, to elections. The government funded the Malawi Electoral Commission up to 100% of the negotiated budget. You can see that Malawi is going a formidable job by funding for elections 100% of the budget. We ensured that there were no funding lapses that could have jeopardized the electoral process and I'm, I'm very glad to report to you that the preparations and implementation of the electoral activities went on smoothly, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. It is my conviction that this is a shared view with all governments within the SADC that electoral management bodies should be adequately funded so as to discharge their duties effectively. The ECF is a network of electoral management bodies from SADC countries which include Malawi, Angola, South Africa, Tanzania, Mozambique, Mauritius, Zanzibar, and Zambia. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. 
Spain's Supreme Court has ruled in favor of removing the remains of Francesco Franco from a state mausoleum. The court rejected an appeal by the late dictator's family against plans for of the socialist government to take the body away from the grandiose Roman Catholic Basilica in the hills near Madrid. The government wants it to be reburied elsewhere before the general election in November. It argues that General Franco's tomb in the Valley of the Fallen serves as a magnet for present-day Fascist. Franco led Spain's fascists in a brutal civil war in the 1930s, which claimed the lives of around half a million people. The BBC's special correspondent Alan Little reports. I'm driving across the baking plains of Estremadura with a former local town mayor called Juan Carlos Molano. He takes me to a place which illustrates the tension in modern Spain between the struggle to remember the past and the temptation to forget it. I'm standing outside a long, squat, single-storey building, maybe 60 or 70 metres long, with evenly spaced windows with rusted bars. But in the 1940s, this building was used as a forced labour camp in the years after the end of the Civil War. Men were brought here from all over Spain and put to work on the land. Juan Carlos wants this building turned into a memorial site. Spain, unlike Germany, he says, has never faced up to its fascist past. The difference is that in Central Europe, fascism was defeated, and in Spain, fascism won. Here, the transition to democracy was very soft. It left a lot of fascism beneath the surface. And it's here on a hilltop north of Madrid, facing into the rising sun, that Spain's battle between memory and forgetting finds its most eloquent symbolism. This monument is so vast that you can see it as you approach from over 20 miles away, but it's only when you stand at the base of it that you understand just how imposing it is. There's a crescent of arches in grey stone at the centre of which is a door that leads into a basilica that's been carved out of the interior of the mountain and in that basilica lies the body, the tomb of General Franco and above that tomb on the mountaintop itself is what's said to be the tallest Christian cross in the world. It rises 150 metres into the sky. When it was inaugurated in 1959 it was intended as an expression of reconciliation between the two sides in the civil war but at the very least it lends itself to another interpretation altogether for many Spaniards see in this a triumphalist celebration of the victory of fascism in that war. Franco after the war. By that time he should be about 42 So this is him right at the start of his... uh, The retired armed forces officer, General Juan Chicharro, is the president of the Francisco Franco Foundation. He has fought the plan to remove Franco's remains. For him, this is a place not of fascist triumphalism, but of national healing. You can see that the the Republican soldiers are in one side, nationalists are in another side. There are angels in one side and angels with their arms here and their arms there. And those arms are pointing the cross, no? Reconciliation. Spanish was built as a Christian uh, nation, Catholic, and the cross symbolizes our history. That's not how it feels to the families of the Republican dead. This is Jose Antonio Marco Vietma, my great uncle. And he was killed when? On the 2nd of September 1936. 
Silvia Navarro is campaigning to recover the bodies of nine men killed by Franco's troops, including her great-uncle. He was taken from his home in 1936 and shot shortly afterwards for his Republican sympathies. After the war, all nine were exhumed from mass graves and reburied at the Valley of the Fallen. I think Franco's body must be removed. The only idea that people who were killed by Franco or by Franco's troops or whatever are buried together with Franco, it's very absurd, very horrible. And they're still glorifying him as if he was the saviour of Spain. The Spain of those defeated by Franco, the Valley of the Fallen is not a place of reconciliation, but of an injustice ignored for too long, in a country still torn between the struggle to remember and to forget the past. That report by the BBC's special correspondent, Alan Little. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger, in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9, and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa. From an African perspective. It's 7.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. The Society of Bank Officials, SASPO, has advised members of the public to withdraw money and fill up their tanks tomorrow. The advice comes ahead of SASPO's strike on Friday. Over 40,000 members affiliated to the Finance Union and Kusatu are expected to down tools against retrenchments in the banking sector. SASPO General Secretary Joe Kukela says that the country must prepare for a total shutdown of banking services. 
the total shutdown it speaks to everything and everything that has to do with the banking in this country. It will come to a standstill. The ATM might also not be working on the day of the strike. And even those who are using the swipe machines, those machines might not be working. We are appealing to the people, especially the motorists, that they better make sure that on Thursday they fill up their tanks. They were appealing that they withdraw enough cash on Thursday. The South African Revenue Service has announced that it has put contingency plans in place ahead of the anticipated bank strike on Friday. In a statement, SARS says it will work with all role players to avert any disruptions to the country's financial system. Zimbabwe's tour operators have alleged unfair business practices by their Botswana counterparts. The operators say they bring their clients straight to the country instead of letting them do that on their behalf. Travel and tour operators say that the practice by their Botswana counterparts was unfair as it meant that almost everything was paid for in the country of origin, translating into unimaginable revenue leakages and little revenue coming. To Zimbabwe. Kenya's central bank will start loosening its monetary policy if the government sustains efforts to cut a gap in budget deficit. The finance ministry has set a fiscal deficit of 5.9% for the fiscal year July 2019-June 2020, which will be lower than the actual deficit of 7.6% in the 2018-2019 financial year. President Uhuru Kenyatta's government has been criticized for increasing borrowing since coming to power in 2013. The current youth unemployment rate in Namibia of 46.1% can be reduced by encouraging the youth to participate in business and giving them a platform to showcase their products and ideas. This was said by National Youth Council Chairperson Mandela Kapere in response to questions about the Namibian on the Council's sponsorship of the Swakopmund Youth Expo. He said one of the solutions to the problem is to encourage the youth to participate in entrepreneurship and provide them with a platform to present their ideas to the market. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.60 Nigerian Nara, 10.79 Botswana Pula, 102.72 Kenyan shilling and 13.6 Zambian guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.16 Brazilian roll, 63.79 Russian ruble, 70.69 Indian rupee, 7.11 Chinese yuan and 14.87 to the South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,529. Platinum, $952 pounds. Brent crude oil is at $62.75 a barrel. From an African perspective, this is Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figule. Figule, um, the World Rugby Rugby World Cup yeah. referees yeah. have oh, been he, reprimanded. Yeah, no, that, that came before even the, the World Cup started. You remember uh, the, the Springboks were blamed for 
for for bringing in something that uh, it was not proven mm. to other people but they said it that uh, all blacks are always getting the better part of uh, the decisions. And this time around, it's a, it was a match against uh, with Japan and Russia, and then also with uh, Fiji. Yes. So, so they've been they've been reprimanded, and there's going to be some changes made. They have to, yeah, because I think everyone is is aware now that the referees are not impartial as they're supposed to be. Mm. Give us an update. And in this hour, we begin with the rugby news story. All Blacks coach Steve Hansen has rejected trial by social media amid growing claims that match officials missed alleged foul play by New Zealand in their bruising battle with South Africa. New Zealand skipper Kieran Reid, prop Joe Moody and South African Peter Steph Dutoy have all come under fire with screen grabs circulated on social media showing apparent cheap shots. The outburst follows claims by the Springboks before last Saturday's test won by New Zealand 23-13 as referees tended to favor the reigning world champion All Blacks. But the incidents were not seen by officials during the match nor raised afterwards by the citing commissioner and Hansen said that should be the end of the matter. And on to football news. Former Nigeria coach and player Samson Siasia says He's still in the dark as to the whereabouts of his abducted mother. A 76-year-old Ogere Siasia and two others have been held captive since they were seized in Bayelsia, southern Nigeria, 10 weeks ago. But Siasia says the police are no closer to finding him. It's the second time in four years that Mrs. Siasia has been kidnapped after she was held by gunmen for 12 days before he released back in November 2015. Russia will miss the World Athletics Championships for the second time in a row after the sports governing body, the IAAF, extended the ban against countries' federation. The IAAF confirmed the decision four days before the start of the competition in Qatar after hearing a report from its task force overseeing Russia's reinstatement efforts. Earlier, the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, revealed that historical data supplied by the country's anti-doping authority contained inconsistencies also putting Russia's participation at the Tokyo Olympics under threat. Head of the IAAF Task Force, Rune Anderson. Since Rusev has not met the reinstatement conditions, the task force recommended and the council unanimously agreed that Rusev should not be reinstated at this time. Russia's Athletics Federation, Rusev, was suspended in November 2015 after a report commissioned by WADA found evidence of widespread doping in the sport. IAAF President Sebastian Cole. Look, of course we are concerned by the information that has, uh, that has been released today. Um, WADA will undertake what is at, whatever is necessary to understand what these discrepancies are, uh, or how these discrepancies can be interpreted. Uh, the AIU, I know, also... Uh, is embark has embarked upon that work. But the, the, the point that I want to reinforce is that um, the resolutions that were strongly, I mean strongly, unanimously endorsed today in Council will be the position we take to Congress uh, and the member federations uh, on Wednesday. And finally, cricket news. Proteus T20 Vice-Captain Rassi van der Dessen 
as praised top-order batsman Temba Bavuma for his outstanding performances in the two recent T20 International against India. The 29-year-old number three batsman Bavuma marked his debut T20 series for South Africa by posting contributions of 49 from 43 balls and 27 from 23 with the latter to a winning cause and series leveler. Van der Deysen says Bavuma's international cricket experience came in handy under pressure. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, U.S. President Donald Trump to face impeachment inquiry and South Sudan's rival ethnic group sign a peace agreement. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Afro Traction with a song titled Mnige. <laughs> Mnige yona, mnige yona. Uya ya zilenta ifuna yo. Mnige yona, mnige yona. Umenga itoli kuwe uzo hamifuna. Angege ksabam nande
Oh, 